Mark Jordan considers his life as a conduit of the arts. It includes sound, sight, and form. He lives it every day. Benefiting from a musical heritage, Jordan had plenty to absorb growing up. His dad, a classically trained baritone vocalist, performed and taught voice. But a young Mark Jordan was listening to influences other than classical music that would pave a different musical road for him. As a young, fresh guitarist, he found himself connecting to Bobby V as he was offered a gig to tour. He jumped at the chance. Along the road, he landed in L.A., where his musical road would lead to meeting Steely Dan producer Gary Katz at Warner Brothers. That was the beginning of a solo career that has honed Jordan's career as a singer, songwriter, and producer. But his creativity didn't stop there. He has honed his skills as an actor and painter, too. Inside Music Cast welcomes the complete artistry of Mark Jordan. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, thanks. Welcome, Mark. Mark, to understand, uh, you know, typically who our guests are, you know, we often often try to uncover, um, you know, where you came from and, you know, your upbringing and you've, you, your music uh, is, is so wonderful and, and uh, it all basically began in, in, in Brooklyn, You, uh, although you were born there. You grew up in Toronto, right? Yeah. Well, my dad, uh, my dad was Canadian, but he worked um, as so many uh, Canadian uh entertainers do mm-hmm. he worked in the states uh he worked in new york for years and uh so i was born down there but then uh this was in uh the very early 50s and he got a television show offered to him in toronto and uh so he did that for a couple of years so we moved back to toronto here he moved back to toronto and uh and then uh i we we just stayed here you know until i moved you know i grew up here and then i moved to la uh, in the uh, in the late seventies. Yeah, well, your dad was actually a very classically trained um, baritone, and he performed yes. for many years, didn't he? Many, many years, yeah. and uh, he did everything. He did uh, big band stuff, and he, he he did everything. It was he sang in like about six languages, and he was. Ter- terrific. They didn't have auto tune in those days. You know, when I listened to his old <laughs> records, and it's so. Amazing, the intonation. It's just perfect. It didn't. Don't you love um, putting on those, you know, the records um, back on and listening to how it used to be? And there was such a, a purity to to how things were recorded. You know, absolutely. Yeah, but so you, different now. Yeah, but your dad actually also. You know, there's a little caveat that we that we need to bring up because it's just so curious. Um, you know that uh, he was actually a voice coach for a couple of the stars too. Tell us about that. I mean, there was a couple famous guys. Well, when he, when he was up here. Mm-hmm. He, <laughs> I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but he he, <laughs> he gave voice lessons to guys like Lauren Green and uh, and um, they would trade. You know, he, they would give him acting lessons, <laughs> and uh, he would give them voice lessons. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So it, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, with with this type of influence growing up. Uh, so, did you ever think you'd ever go into classical performance? I mean, we ever. You know, it was the family business. And, and, you know, if you have kids, uh, uh, I didn't want to do what my dad did. Right. So I thought maybe I'd be an actor or something. And I studied, actually studied film at university. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, um, and I thought maybe I would, I would, uh, be an actor, but I'm, I'm very dyslexic. And, um, I, I, I think it would have been a problem for me because, uh, uh dyslexic, have have a hard time memorizing words and mm-hmm. and things like that. So, um, I, you know, when I was at university, I, I put my guitar back in, in my case, and and I didn't take it out for about two years, and then suddenly one day I just I missed the music so much mm-hmm. that I just thought, you know, this is what I was meant to do. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was just curious when you were studying music with your father. Uh, what was he teaching you? I was curious about, you know, what sort of styles of music was he injecting into your, your palate there in an early age? Well, he, you know, we didn't have formal lessons, uh-huh. but I, I picked it up by osmosis in a way, because when he, um, I would hear him teach other people, you know, he taught at home, he had a studio in the, in it, in the house uh, when he was, after he was retired from performing. Uh-huh. And I would hear him, and um, my dad really um, 
connected with lyrics in a, in a, in a way that a lot of men don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he told me to listen to women, like like the Ella Fitzgeralds and, and the right. Billie Holidays. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he was right, because I think uh, women tend to connect with lyrics in a way men don't. Mm-hmm. It's a funny thing, but I, I do believe that. Yeah, I do too. And, um, and so I, he told me, he was the one who told me words are really, really important. Mm-hmm. And, um, and maybe that's, maybe that's why I became, partly be, why I became a songwriter. I don't know. Mm. Well, you just mentioned a second ago that, uh, you know, you said you're dyslexic and, and I'm assuming that, um, when you were learning music, you, you if you're if you had a, a problem reading, I, I think I saw an interview where you said that, you know, like notes on a page or like the letter D and B and P, they just bounce all over, you know, kind of float around yes. for you. And uh, um, so I'm assuming you're learning by ear. Is that correct? Well, exactly. Yeah. But I, you know, I took piano lessons, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I my teacher didn't know I was dyslexic, and and you know what, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't know why I couldn't learn, be, you know, and, and why I couldn't keep the notes <laughs> yeah. from moving on right, the page. Right. So I, I, he, I would get, my trick was I would get my piano teacher to play the piece just be, at the end of the lesson. Yeah. And I'd, rem, I'd rush home and I'd, I'd remember it. Okay. And I developed my ear that way. Wow. In the late 70s, everybody was making it up anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. it didn't really matter. <laughs> well, as your as your career in music, you know, started to take off, you know, later in life, did you eventually become more proficient with reading music, or did you still play and work by ear? Well, I can read like single line mm-hmm. stuff, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, I and chord charts and things like that. And and I did I did learn, you know, I went through uh, a couple of the Berkeley books. Uh, when I studied guitar and that, you know, it was a grind, but I, but I did it, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it, but it's not something that I, that I take too easily. And, and I, I'm more of an instinctive player and an instinctive uh, singer. Mm-hmm. Learning by ear and listening, obviously what you hear obviously translates into what you do with your fingers and your sound and your ear. So, so what are the type of things uh, when you were learning to play guitar, what were you, who were you mimicking? Who, which guitarists were you really listening to? Well, you know, I, I, I started out it, more listening, not so much for, for the guitar work, mm-hmm. but I listened to the structure of songs, yeah. you know? So I listened to rock bands. You know, I, my, the radio was my teacher. You know, I listened yeah. to songs on the radio. And, and, and in those days, they played everything from, uh, you know, you'd hear Django Reinhardt and then you'd hear Smokey Robinson, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, on, on the radio. They, they weren't so tightly formatted. So you, you heard everything. And, um, and so I, I, I listened less for the musicianship than I did. It was the structure and the architecture right. mm-hmm. of songs that interested me. Well, a second ago, you mentioned that uh, you studied film at Brock, I think, was it Brock University? Is that right? Yeah. And uh, I was just curious why, why you chose film as a major. And I guess uh, the good news about that is that it sort of paid off later because I know you worked on some uh, scores, you know, for some films down the road. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a visual person. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you know, I also paint. That's right. Yeah. As well. Mm-hmm. But I, I see, I actually, uh, music for me is, I, see, I actually see it as a movie. Mm-hmm. Like when I hear um, a track, like when I'm working on a track, for instance, it, um, I, I see it as much as I hear it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was drawn to film because it was such a, a profound uh, visual medium. And, and um, uh, you know, I love it to this day, and I wanted to learn more about it. And, and I, and, you know, and I thought I was maybe gonna, going to be an actor still at that point, so I wanted to learn the history, and we, and the, so I, I 
you know, that we studied, you know, films from the, the entire 20th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mark, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your, uh, you know, why you, you moved to the States and how, you know, you uh, you landed actually playing a gig with with Bobby V. Was it Bobby that uh, put you into the, the more, let's call it a, a more serious music path? Well, I um, I was very impressed with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, he, everybody thinks he was this uh, bubblegum guy who had these uh, very commercial hits, but and and he did. But he was. I, I played guitar for him when he was up in you know Canada. Right. And um, what what he what I realized about him was that he had all this other material, which was really uh, quite original and uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say better than his hits, but but not a little more inside and a little cooler. Mm-hmm. And but he couldn't play them. He said he tried to play them. <laughs> live, but his fans didn't want to hear it. So he was kind of trapped mm-hmm. by his own success. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And but he, you know, he he was, I guess, the first big time American that I I had access to and talked to him. And you know, Bob Dylan used to be in his band, and and uh, he so he he had been around the block. Mm-hmm. And he was an interesting guy, and um, he he said uh, that I should go either to New York or uh, or to uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. and um, and I ended up in L.A. Well, you know, we we recently interviewed uh, a friend of yours, Gary Katz. Uh, he was our last guest. Oh, and, yeah, just he was our most recent guest uh, prior to you. And and uh, you know, you've mentioned that your career began, you know, working with him after you were signed to Warner Brothers. So, tell me about your first connection with Gary. You know, uh, when he invited you to L.A. to work on some music. Well, I was uh, thrilled because um, I actually just had lunch with him about a month ago. Oh, yeah. New York, I hadn't seen him in many years. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. Uh-huh. He's cool. But um, I, um, you know, was thrilled because I was a Steely Dan fan. Yeah, you know? right. And, uh, so it was very exciting. And, and Gary had access to all those great players, mm-hmm. with the Jeff Picaros <laughs> and, the, and the Steve Lukather's and the Dave Pages and the, right. you know... Steely Dan worked with the best of the best, and and so Gary got all those guys uh, to play on my records, and mm-hmm. and it was you know it was thrilling for me. Abe Laboreal and and um, and uh, you know it was just unreal. Mm-hmm. You know, to, uh, one day I was playing a uh, a little joint in the in in um, a small town outside of Ottawa, Canada. And then the next day, I was I was in a studio with the, you know these guys, and right. it was uh, blew my mind. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> blow my mind. That's for sure. But you know something, they were they were so fantastic. You know, even though they were they were sort of um, session superstars, these guys. Mm-hmm. That's where I met Jay Graydon as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were. They were nothing but patient with me and and humble and just great. They none of them had attitudes. It was just unreal. They were wonderful. Well, I'm sure probably at the time, you know, they had already claimed their reputations early on, and that was you know seventy seven or seventy eight, I think. And now, in hindsight, it's even more impressive because when you step back and look at their, you know, the the just their discographies, everything they've done, it's 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 even more mind blowing. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like Rick said, it was that was like around 77, 78. And so, so your first, you know, record that was produced with uh, with Gary was Mannequin. And, of course, we're very familiar with that work. Um, but, uh, you know, tell us about that first project, Mark. I mean, it's you have so many uh, projects after that. But that first one, and you're beginning to describe it a little bit. But what was it when you're jumping into this pool and, of course, these new artists and, and Gary, he's trying to nurture you? What what type of um, molding was he was he doing with you as an artist with your first project? Well, um, 
you know, in those days, I was so new to recording that I couldn't even sing without playing guitar. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like that. Right. I didn't have any studio craft. Okay. And Gary helped me with that mm-hmm. because uh, they, they they had the budgets to to have us in the studio and just do it till it was right. And and I was no one take wonder. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> It was, um, it took time and Gary, uh, was very patient and, and, um, you know, Roger Nichols, who was the engineer was a brilliant oh, yeah. guy at putting takes together and, mm-hmm. and punching. And in those days, you know, there was a lag time when you punched in on a, on a track, right, right. Exactly. you had to anticipate mm-hmm. beats and, <laughs> and Roger was like an atomic clock. He, he just was, un, he was amazing. You know, he could anticipate so well. So it, it made it, um, a little bit easier on me, but, but they gave me the time to learn how to do it in the studio. I often say that music is like water. You know, it can be ice, it can be liquid, or it can be a, a gas, you know <laughs> right. what I'm saying? And, and, uh, depending on, on where you are, like if you play a song live mm-hmm. at, in a theater, it's, you wouldn't, you do it differently than you would if you were singing it in a studio. Mm-hmm. It's very, very different. The approach and everything, although to the listener, it may sound the same. It's not the same. Right. And because the environment has changed. So, I was, you know, up to that point, the point, the point that I started Mannequin, I, you know, I'd, I'd only been in the studio, you know, just a little wee bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a live player, so it, it, I had to learn how to dial it back a bit and, and, and to, to get it right for, for vinyl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also mentioned a second ago, you, you mentioned Roger Nichols, but didn't you have Al Schmidt on that album as well? Didn't, wasn't he uh, engineering? Yes, he was. Jeez. We started with Al mm-hmm. and um, we worked with Al and, and until he had, um, he had another project mm-hmm. that he was booked on before me. So we worked with him for a month and then we uh, went over to the Village Recorder and... Um, worked with uh, Roger. It, it sort of uh, boggles my mind, Mark, that, you know, most most people in their first album, they're, they're starting at the bottom and pushing the wagon up the hill. You start yeah. at the top of the hill and <laughs> with these yeah. guys, and, and the it's wagon amazing. And kept rolling down from yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. It just, I'm like, <laughs> that, that is such, such it, it really does boggle my mind because that is such a, and an, uh, it just doesn't happen that way. And uh, yeah. to, to be able to start with that type of momentum in your career, um, you know, I can see how it rolls on. I mean, because your next album was was Blue Desert, and and you had the same arsenal. You had Omardian, Porcaro, yeah. Keltner, and all these guys, Matheson, and the list goes on and on. Bill Champlin, and um, and by the time you, you, this album comes out, you're you're swimming in this new West Coast vibe that has this amazing sound with with Graydon backing it up all, all up uh, as as producer. I think those were some of Jay's best solos. Like, uh, you know, he. He was just getting into producing, and he hadn't. When he did my record, he hadn't played. He hadn't been working on other things. Yeah. He hadn't been doing any any yeah. sessions, and he hadn't played his guitar in uh, about six weeks, which he said was the longest he's ever been without playing. He just put it away, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he pulled it out for uh, Blue Desert, and uh, he was. He was excited to play again. I think he he got a bit burnt. Mm-hmm. Like he, I think he holds the Guinness Book of World Records for for the most sessions in a year or something. <laughs> he, he, he was unreal. Like he would do, he would start at eight eight in the morning and go to midnight. <laughs> wow, it's amazing. <laughs> Well, yeah, well. Speaking of Jay Graydon, and you know, and obviously his involvement on this album, how did you how did you first connect with Jay Graydon, and what what was it that made him you know your choice as producer, or or did you have a choice? How, how did that all come together for yeah, that album? Right. Gary hired him okay. to play on uh, on Mannequin, so right. I I heard him play, and he was just amazing. And then and then. Um, 
he did a record with a guy named Steve Kipner. Oh, I, yeah, I know Steve. Well, you know, Steve is a you know major songwriter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, had all those hits with Olivia and, and others. But um, I love the record he did with Kipner, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think a lot of people heard that record, but uh, it was a pretty cool record, mm-hmm. and I just love the tracks. So um, he he approached me and. I thought it would be a good fit. Hmm. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, let's take a break, and we want to listen to a track from your new album project that's uh, set to be released on October 15th, titled On a Perfect Day. And this track is called Avelina. have several correspondents um, throughout the world, uh, Mark, and and Mikhail Ingström out of, um, of Stockholm in Sweden. He asks a question to you, and, and he brings out this one song that's actually on the Blue Desert album. He says, the song, I'm a Camera, uh, on the Blue Desert album, uh, it includes the vocal performance by Vinette Gloud. Um, yeah. Was that decided early on, or did it just happen, so to speak, during the recording process? Uh, apparently, he, he really loves this uh, that track. Yeah, Vanetta Gloud, amazing singer. And I, I remember when she came in, she's just a little wee girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, <laughs> you know, she looked like she weighed about 80 pounds, but she had this amazing voice. 
And uh, Jay um, made that call. And it was, a, it was a, funny you bring that up because Jay called her and he, and he called Bill Champlin to coach her through, mm-hmm. through the vocal that she did. Okay. And Jay didn't want to do it. He said Bill was the best at doing that, and he had a, a good relationship with Vanetta. And uh, so Bill, I think the session started it. You know Jay Graydon's schedule, right? <laughs> you know about that? No, who tell me? Well, I don't know if he'd want to. I, I don't think he'd give, care. But <laughs> Jay, <laughs> he, he probably Jay wouldn't. Gets up, Jay gets up at four in the afternoon. Okay. Okay. And has his breakfast at five o'clock. And then he starts work at seven and goes through the night to about seven in the morning. That's his, that's how he lives. He's <laughs> a nocturnal woman. <laughs> He's like a ferret. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Jay's, I'm sure Jay's going to listen to this. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, so Jay the ferret, uh, <laughs> we, we started the session at midnight with Vanetta, and of course she'd been up, uh, you know, she was tired. She'd probably done a couple of sessions that day, and and Bill Champlin came in and just really helped arrange what she was going to sing uh-huh. and uh, coached her through it. That was actually the first night I, I met Bill, and he'd sung on other stuff, but I hadn't been at the sessions mm-hmm. for some reason. Interesting. And um, so that was uh, that was where I, that was where I met him. And oddly enough, I, I was Bill was working on something uh, that I helped another uh, artist uh, write. And Bill was up here about three weeks ago, and we uh, we hung out. That was God. It was a long time since I've seen him. Mm-hmm. He's still singing great. A lot of times when we talk to guests about L.A. and in that that's late 70s, early 80s period when it was such a vibrant studio scene happening with, you know, all these great players, as we've mentioned. I was just curious about, you know, your experiences when you were there during that time period in terms of live performance. You know, um, in L.A., we all know of the great places like the Baked Potato and some of the other great yeah. clubs. But was it a vibrant scene with, with lots of, like, live gigs happening out there during that time? Or were you just really confined yeah. to the studio? Yeah. Lots. Lots. Okay. But it, that went away in the 80s. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> it actually got down to pay to play, I think. Ah, uh, okay. And, uh, but in the first five years I was there, it was smoking. Mm-hmm. And guys would, you know, sit in and there would be lots of jams. And, mm-hmm. well, the baked potato is, is, is legendary. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I heard some shit at the baked potato, man, that I, I wish I'd recorded it, I'll tell you. Like, guys, I, I, you know, I remember one night, uh, you know, I'm, honestly, I, I don't even remember. I know Greg Matheson was playing organ, mm-hmm. but I, I can't remember the other guys. Lukather was in the audience, and they, they got Lukather up <laughs> to play on this one song. Uh-huh. And he, he I... I don't know. Like he lifted people out of his their seats. Like people, he was playing the solo that went on for about six minutes, and he actually everybody was on their feet. Wow! You know, by the after the first minute, like mm-hmm. it just got bigger and better and more passionate and. It was astonishing. It was just one of those astonishing moments. Yeah. You, you can't believe it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know there were there were things like that that just you know happened if you were hanging out and. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I just saw. I didn't I, hang out all that much, but I, but I saw some amazing things. I just saw him. The last time I saw him was just a few weeks ago with Toto, and you know he still does that when he when he has a solo. Of course, you know his in a situation like Toto, he doesn't. 
you know, go off and shred like he would at a small club like the yeah. Big Potato. But but still, I mean, he you know, people are there to see him. I mean, a, a large portion of the audience are <laughs> are such Luke aficionados, and when he gets up on stage and starts, you know, after a after a uh, a, a solo, you know, it's undoubtedly no matter where he goes, people are going Luke. You know, it sounds like everybody's booing in the crowd, but they're saying you know Luke <laughs> in unison. Yeah, no, <laughs> so it's, and Larry, Larry Carlton too. You know, his uh, oh, yeah. it's a whole different thing. His finesse, and uh, I, I remember seeing him a few times in clubs. And oh, <laughs> hey, hey, Mark, let's talk a little bit about your your songwriting. And I want to allude a little bit to what you said, the question that you answered a little earlier on when you were a, a kid and growing up of of how you used to listen to music, and you wouldn't listen necessarily to instrumentation, but how a song was sort of built, and you know. Uh, you know, how, now as a songwriter, I mean, it, it, you've evolved into a, a great songwriter and you've written for so many artists, but how do you find your songs? I mean, what's your, you, what's your emotional space when you, you know, you're inspired to write? Can you write anywhere or is that uh, too obtuse of a question? No, I, well, you know, there, I, look, I, I, I worked as, as a songwriter right. for many years for publishers and stuff. And, uh, and I learned a lot about the craft, but I was never one of those songwriters that, and they used to leave me alone, but I was never a songwriter. They they would say, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Christina Aguilera is looking for a song. Mm-hmm. We write, write that song. <laughs> I could never do that. I don't, didn't, that's a separate talent than, than what I have. I just, I, every song I write, I write it as if I'm going to record it. Okay. That's the only way I can make it honest. Mm-hmm. I can't get into someone else's head. I can't write for Bette Midler. If she does a song for, of mine, fine. Uh, but I can't get into her head and pretend to write what she thinks. Mm-hmm. So I start with a track, you know, and I usually, I used to do everything myself, but I now I work with uh, Too Lonely. So I, I, I co-write all the time now. So I usually work with <laughs> guys that uh, know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. uh, so we work on a track, and we make a simple track, like just with a beatbox and a and some chords, like just. But we get the arc. We get the the the, the arc of it right. You know, we we see where it has to build and and how it builds and and. So it's the framework, I guess, like the superstructure of the song, and, and very simply. And then, then I t- take that home, and I, I listen to it. Mm-hmm. And a- as I was mentioning before, I see music as a movie. So I look at the movie mm-hmm. in my head, and I and I get a you know it's not like I'm not like I'm an actual movie, but it it, right. it is a visual thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sort of, I sort of sense the emotional temperature of it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, music is a language as, as much as words are. So you have to listen to what the music is saying and you have to say the same thing. Yeah. Because if you're saying something different than the music, it, it doesn't hang right. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting the way you're explaining it, Mark, because, uh, you know, we've talked to some writers in the past that, that, you know, if they write for someone else, they say, oh, I can hear that person singing it. So I write to their intonations and their, you know, yes. like, like you say, it's a different talent when you're writing for someone and they and they and, and that's the way you you process your, your creativity. But, you yeah. know, with with your list of people that have basically sung your songs, such as Rod Stewart, Diana Ross, Kenny Loggins, we could go on and on, Joe Cocker and Bonnie Raitt. So you're not necessarily writing for them, but the song has sort of landed in their circle. How typically does it land on their circle after um, after, after you write it? How does that happen? I would say there's one exception, and that's Rod Stewart. Okay. And I'll tell you why. I never hear Rod in my head, but... I often hear Sam Cooke in my head, hmm. mm-hmm. and I know I can. I, I will bet you a million dollars that Rod Stewart listened to a lot of Sam Cooke. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I can see uh, that. And I know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, just 
by hearing the way he sings. Mm -hmm. So Rod and I have a similar thing in the way we will go after a melody or a phrase. And I, you know, he's done four of my songs, and I, I think that's why. I think he finds them easy to sing and they make sense to him. Because I go to that Sam Cook place a fair amount when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, I, I love. I've always loved Sam the way Sam Cook sings. Mm-hmm. So that's the exception. the uh, The other stuff, it's just the people did my songs because they recognized that they were for real and mm-hmm. they were honest and kind of truthful. Mm-hmm. And they made them their own. Like they, they, you know, they all brought something to the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but but I didn't write it in for them. They brought it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know who you know a who good said singer that. will make any song their own. Like Sinatra could do anything, you know, and he made it his own. And and good singers do that. Mm-hmm. You know, when we had Randy Goodrum on the show, you know, a while back, he basically said the same thing. You know, he says you you put it out there and and you give them the basic. Uh, musical structure, lyric, value, and they make something out of it. They sort of paint it in their own ways. You know, that, that's interesting because yes. I see you're the way you operate, very much like, like Randy does. Yeah. yeah. He's, Randy's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, um, your wife, Amy Skye, is also uh, a musician and writer, and I'm just curious to know how often the two of you have collaborated on projects. Well, we collaborated. Uh, we have two kids. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate Mu- collaboration. Music, music collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> Musically speaking. <laughs> oh, music. Oh. oh, there was music. There was music oh. playing. There was music playing. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, there was music playing, and it wasn't my record either. <laughs> Barry White. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, um, we we write together a little bit, but not a lot, uh-huh. and. Um, but whenever she's stuck, she runs runs it by me. Whenever I'm stuck, I run it by her. Okay. And we rarely use <laughs> each other's ideas. Yeah. But it, we're very different songwriters. So mm-hmm. she gives me a different way of looking at a problem if I'm having a problem. And by the mere fact that she gives me a, a different way of looking through the prism, I end up getting it. So she 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 works magic mm-hmm. when I have a, a writer's block, and uh, I think I do the same for her. Is that where you made your comment a little while ago that women see lyrics a little differently? Does that that assist you, right? Oh, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think they 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 see them differently. It's, it's more important to them than it is for men. And she looks at a song really from a very lyric point of view. Yeah. In '83, you released "Hole in the Wall," and it was only really released in uh, in, in for the Japanese market. Um, yeah, what's what's the story on there? Why 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 did that happen? I don't remember exactly how it came about, but they they wanted this guy in Japan. I think his name was Taka Nanri. Uh, had a label, mm-hmm. and he wanted me and David Foster. Uh, Mike Boddicker mm-hmm. and Patty Austin on his label. So he's, you know, I, I, my t- two record deal was over at Warner, so I was free and Foster was free, and I guess Patty, I guess we were all free. And um, they flew us over to J- Japan and signed us, and then we, we made, uh, we, we each made a record. Well, that was right, you know, right around that time in eighty, uh, in, in eighty-seven. Um, you know, you you had another album. It was called "Talking Through Pictures," which um, had a, a really progressive uh, new sound, and it's probably something that was probably new to you, obviously, from your previous albums because you included yeah. guys like Steve George and uh, you know, a former guest of ours, Pat Mastelato, and you yeah. moved into a whole new pool of sound and tell us what was happening there because uh that was shortly right before you know mr mr's go on album and uh to spin this record uh and now we were been listening to this all all week but it it took you to a different place what was happening here well there was a guy 
a South African guy in Toronto when I was in Toronto named uh, Paul de Villiers. Mm-hmm. And Paul was a friend of Mutt Lang's gotcha. in South Africa. Mutt, you know, Mutt went to London and did all this stuff. And Paul was from that same sort of school sonically. Anyway, he ended up in Toronto. And he was, became my sound man. And this guy uh, was a genius. He could do things on the fly. You just, he was unbelievable. Uh, and everybody, you know, anyway, I'll come to that later. But, but anyway, so we did some demos in Toronto uh, in the early 80s. And um, Mr. Mister had just been signed uh, to RCA. It was RCA then, not BMG. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Mr. Mister and I had the same manager, George Giz, Mogul Entertainment. Right, 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 yeah. So George heard the demos that Paul did, and they were they were fantastic. And they had this big interesting drum sound. And um, he said, geez, he said, I got to play this for Richard Page. He said, this is a, a, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And um, Richard heard it and flipped. And George said, well, do you mind if we borrow De Villiers? And uh, I said, no, fine. Going, you know, this would be a great opportunity for Paul to produce a record, mm-hmm. you know, because I knew he could do it. And he'd never done it before, but I knew he could do it. And so, Paul, so I, you know, called Paul, put Paul together with Mr. Mister and George, and um, they hit it off and they made this incredible record together. So then RCA wanted, they heard my demos and they, they signed me as well. And I made Talking Through Pictures, which was not, didn't have the commercial, what didn't have that big commercial song. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, I got to tell you, that record took two and a half years to make. And we made every sound that was on that record. We actually made the sound. Wow. Amazing. We were banging things and... <laughs> Boeing things, and, and we had these primitive samplers. Mm-hmm. We made everything. You know, a year after the record came out, the, the, the Roland D50 came out with half the sound on it. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> and we were making them That's one <laughs> nanosecond at a time. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it was an interesting record. Well, hey, Eddie and Mark, uh, I want to pause again, and I want to check out another track from Mark's upcoming album release called On a Perfect Day. And this is a track titled Hell of a Ride. I guess everybody thinks they need a little time, but you walked out the door and you took all of mine. Last time I checked, Denver was covered with snow. So I drove through Santa Fe to Mexico. There's a bar down there and they dance real slow. Spanish town, nothing's changed. But the curb broke down on the Shot from a gun Yeah Hell of a ride What doesn't kill you Keeps you stronger inside When you broke my heart It was no surprise Loving you was a Hell of a ride Love changed Girl 
Well, hey, Mark, we've got a question from uh, Brian Hobbs, who's over in Sweden, and I think by way of North Carolina, I think he's an American that li- now lives in Sweden. And he says, he says, I know I've heard something about you and Cliff Magnus recording an album together. And he said it might have been the early uh, to mid-90s. It was called Mark Jordan Cliff Magnus Project. And he says, uh, rumor says a Swedish uh, label was interested in releasing it, but uh, did it ever happen? And if not, can the story be revealed as to why? I don't know where that rumor started. <laughs> but Cliff, Cliff and I worked together for off and on for a couple of years. We never did make a record. We just did a bunch of great songs. And I don't know how people heard them. I, I, I honestly don't know. I think maybe there was a bootleg of the demos or something in Europe. I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know, but I've heard the, I've heard this a lot, and and people, you know, uh, email me or Facebook me and say, well, "When when are you going to finish your uh, Cliff and Mark record?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, there is no record, <laughs> and we've talked about doing one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if you know, if there was a demand for it, I, I guess we'd do it. But it, it's sort of hard these days because nobody nobody pays for music anymore. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I just, I just bought the album on Amazon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you bought it. it yeah, at least you bought it. It's been downloaded on, on some free site, right? It sounded like a, a transfer what from a cassette. a great writer, though. Yeah. 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 Being where you are today, Mark, you know, I guess it's another statement to say that a lot of things have changed. You know, and we're sort of joking about uploading and downloading and buying and stuff, but so much has changed in the music industry. So, you know, from back to the LPs, the CDs, to MP3s and all that, you know, how, how have you shifted gears into this whole business? Does it, how do you see that? Is that, uh, does it change the industry or does it not? Is it only the delivery system? And how do you no, see it? No, it's changed it completely. Uh, yeah. You can't make a, a living as a songwriter anymore. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. You'd need a hit every 25 minutes. <laughs> because, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you know, even, even the sites, you know, even like iTunes and, you know, Spotify, they, they pay they pay almost nothing right. to the writers. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact numbers, but we used to get, it, you know, if I wrote a song and it was on a share record, I'd get eight cents a song, uh, split with my publisher, I guess, but eight cents for every CD sold. And now for a download, you get about point zero zero four six cents. Oh, so boy. you can see, it's just, it's not viable anymore. And it's something has to change because people won't do it. Um, the only way you can make money in music now is, uh, is live. So as long as you're on the road, uh, you can make a living, but, but you can't. And, and it's rippled through the industry, you know, session musicians, um, are not, busy anymore and mm-hmm. you know the whole thing is is collapsed but it'll I, I think it'll come back i mean i think they will monetize the internet in some way that's mm-hmm. equitable i mean it's not just songwriters it's book writers and yeah. photographers and any anybody who has something you can reduce to zeros and ones is right. in trouble yeah so they have to figure it out mm-hmm. because um, it's it's not working some good points. Hey, on your compilation album called Living in Marina Del Rey and Other Stories that was released, I think, back in 2002, there are two remixed versions of, of songs, Survival and, and uh, Marina Del Rey, that were done by Brad Nelson, I believe. And were were there any specific reasons why you decided to remix uh, those two songs in, that original? Well, I, I never liked the way Mannequin sounded. Uh-huh. Mannequin was supposed to be mixed by Bill Schnee, I believe. Mm-hmm. I actually don't remember why that didn't happen, mm-hmm. but there was some, uh, maybe he was hung up on a project. I, I don't remember why that didn't happen, but anyway, we ended up using Roger Nichols mixed it. Okay. And Roger isn't a mixer. He, he was, yeah, he was more a recording engineer. Right, right. 
And and so that record, to me, never sounded, never was as good as what was on tape. Gotcha. I mean, uh, when I remixed it, even a second-generation master, I mean, I, I, I remixed those two songs up here, and, like, people were coming in the room and wanted to sample drums. It, it's really sounded good and Roger did a great job getting stuff to tape but he wasn't really a mixer so yeah. so I, I I remixed it and and um, you know I guess probably a lot of people don't like the remix because they're not used to hearing it that way but that's yeah. the way I always heard it it's interesting okay. well you know while we talked about mannequin a little while ago uh, we we often ask our guests about their uh, Encounters and memories of Jeff Percaro, and you know, and, and Jeff played on the Blue Desert album in '79, and I just wanted to know what your memories are of Jeff. Well, and, and American as well. Yeah, in in fact, right. when I, Jesus, when I um, put the tape on to remix Manic, uh, remix Marina Del Rey yeah. and Survival, mm-hmm. I heard Jeff talking, and it was between takes, right. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was really eerie and lovely at the same time yeah. to hear his voice. Mm-hmm. Jeff was a wonderful guy. He 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 was really he was always the light in the room. He um, he uh, he was funny and he had a lot of energy, and he he clearly loved what he did. Yeah, you know, it wasn't just a job. Mm-hmm. And he, you know. The drummer is the quarterback for the band, and and if if you you ain't got the the right quarterback, you you haven't got a team yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And Jeff, he was just solid and inventive and always smiling. You know, he he loved to play, and uh, he was just a joy to be around. And uh, you know, he's sorely missed. I'll tell you that. Definitely, you know, um, you mentioned a little while ago that you're you're a painter. Well, so is Jeff, and um, it's. Well, it, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, you. Yes, I remember his drawings. Yeah, yeah. He, right. he 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 loved to draw everything. Apparently, yeah. and uh, boy, I, I would do anything just to have uh, one of his drawings. It's just, um, but you know, he was so full of life, and and it just seems to me that the musicians that are also creative and visual artists. Uh, I mean that 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 happens all the time. Um, you know, even uh, another guy that uh, well, Herb Alpert is an amazing painter. Uh, yeah, he's got an amazing body of work that he's done in in shows. You got to look that up. His, his um, he's painted even covers very much like you uh, because I think you did uh, your latest album. I think you painted is it on on a perfect day? That's your painting on that co- cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting how you know the visual artist and the musician um, the uh, musical artists uh, sort of blend into all forms of outpouring of, of their art, you know? Interesting. Well, it's the same part of your brain. I, it, it is for me. It's, you know, it, look, a painting is uh, is architecture and texture and shape and color, and and that's what music is, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's It just takes a different form. You hear music and you look at art, but it, it's the same part of your brain. Now, I can't, you know, with my painting, I did the same thing that I did with my music. I picked it up by ear. Mm-hmm. I never really studied. Right. And uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not a fine artist by any stretch of the imagination. But I do, I call it flat music because, yeah. To me, it's just the same as music. Yeah, it's it's nice. I've I've seen your work online, and it's uh, very interesting. I'd encourage all of our listeners to go uh, to Mark's website and, and check out the pieces of work. Very nice stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Um. There's one project, uh, or actually, uh, uh, an album, Make Believe uh, Ballroom, in which we find yeah. this one song that's just beautiful, nice, nice, beautiful track. It's rich. It's well built. It's uh, Lulu the Acrobat. Tell you know you know tell us a little bit about this uh, the concept of this song. I, I really enjoy this 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 track. Well, that's interesting you bring that up. I was reading um, and I don't read a lot of books, but I because of my dyslexia. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I was 
reading a, an autobiography of the poet and writer Jean Genet, and he was a notorious drunk in Paris, and um, when he wasn't writing, he was drinking and causing all sorts of problems. Anyway, he, he was talking about, he mentioned one night he was out drinking, and I don't know, he, he got into a fight or something, and he ended up in the in the drunk tank in Paris, and in those prisons, a lot of them are underground in the in the old vaults and stuff, and, mm-hmm. and uh, there are these stone walls and Anyway, he just happened to mention when he woke up in the morning. He looked up and the, on the scratched on the wall was "I'll always love Lulu the acrobat," and he just mentioned that. <laughs> and I thought, you know, my writer's brain just went, "Holy smokes, what a great title that is!" Yeah, right. always love Lulu the acrobat. And I wrote, and you know, I wanted to write this song. And then I, I was working with um, my then producer Steve McKinnon. And, he, you know, about a, uh, nine months later, he, he, we were working on a track, and I, I went, this is the Lulu song, and I w- went home and wrote it. And after that, this, this Broadway producer guy heard it, uh, or a director, and um, he said, I think there's a story here. So anyway, we're, we're, we're doing, we're, we've made a musical out of it. And we have a Broadway producer called Junkyard Dog, and um, uh, they were the guys who who uh, put on Memphis. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what we're working on now. Very cool. And it all came from that one little line. <laughs> that's neat. Well, Eddie, just a second ago, he mentioned uh, when he was talking about your artwork and how you um, the there's a piece uh, that you painted that's now the cover for the upcoming project called On a Perfect Day. I wanted to ask you about that project, uh, On a Perfect Day. It's going to be released soon, I believe, uh, uh, October 15th. Is that correct? Yeah, you can uh, you can hear part of it on uh, my website, markjordan.com. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about that project and uh, maybe, um, I mean, obviously you can go to the website and hear some samples, but what was sort of the... Um, the influence or sort of your direction behind this particular album uh, as opposed well, to... Well, I've been working with this piano player, producer guy named Chris Bilton. Uh, he's a really wonderful player. Mm-hmm. He's a Berkeley-trained guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always like piano players that... Uh, I call them the Bill Evans of pop music. Because, <laughs> you know, there's some guys that we, you see them play and they have their hands like two feet apart. Mm-hmm. And he has his hands together, and he plays these hmm. inside sort of inside melodies and very clustery. And I always loved that. Okay, you know, harmonically, I, mm-hmm. I'm drawn to it. So uh, we, you know, I, I <laughs> it was more that I saw him play than I heard him play, uh-huh. and I thought I'm going to write a song with this guy. And we tried it, and it turned out good. And just kept writing and then we made a couple of records so um he's uh he's just really a, a wonderful melodic player and i i, I you know i i there's nothing more to it than that we just enjoy writing together and and uh i wanted to do an independent record i um i fulfilled my commitment to emi and uh-huh. and um so i I, I just think music industry is moving in a in a different you know path now, and mm-hmm. I, so I wanted to try it just to sell records through social media in a way, you know, right? And, uh, and um, so I, I made this record, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna see if uh, we can't uh, bring it to the people. Well, we can't wait to take a listen to it, and uh, when it you know when it draws draws closer to the time, we'll be sure to inform all of our listeners about it. Obviously, they're hearing about it now, so um, yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to remind everyone uh, where to find it and uh, where can they find it. Is it going to be primarily download, or will there be a physical CD product as well? There'll be a physical one, but you can buy it on Bandcamp. Okay, Bandcamp. That's right. Very good. Okay, yeah. a lot of people seem to be turning that way to Bandcamp these days. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. Hmm. Well, hey, guys, uh, let's take one more break and dive into one more track from Mark's soon-to-be-released album titled On a Perfect Day uh, that comes out October 15th. And this is a track titled My TV. My TV. 
on the road fast as a gun rockabilly songs on the radio Ursula Hickey and the Diamond Rose everybody wants to be a star everybody wants to be someone the Okaloosa in the pouring rain and head it out for the L.A. sun My old man's rusty as a rusty rake Fishing down by Black Hole Lake He buried his dreams by an apple tree But I saw the future I saw the future, baby On my TV Motel, and I played my guitar like a ring of a bell. Too much wine and not enough wind. Now I'm back on the street and I can't make a living. My old man's rusty as a rusty rig, fishing down by Black Hallway. He buried his dreams by. But I saw the future I saw the future, baby You follow the river You follow the stars But you always end up Right where you are Ran away from a small town It was all in my head Ran away from Maria Now my heart feels like lead time you spent with us today we've learned a lot and i'm sure our listeners are really digging this Absolutely. so thank you thank so you much so much right. for having me yeah not I a really problem at all it. yeah well have a good day and uh and we'll keep in touch especially when your the new project comes out okay great thanks so much thanks guys Bye. special thanks to mark jordan for joining us on this episode of inside music cast we'd also like to thank our correspondents kim riley brian pearson scott gross max zape mikhail ingstrom uve reith Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Uniland for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Almost blue. Almost doing There's a girl here and she's almost you Almost All the things that you promised
just with your eyes.